Hello again, I'm Richard Figge, and this is for Reading Out Loud. Thanks for being with me tonight. Our author this evening is the Ukrainian writer Nikolai Gogol. He was a playwright, novelist, and short storyteller. Schooled in Ukrainian culture and folklore, he was a keen observer of the world around him, he had a strong satiric sense, and also a relish for the grotesque and a touch of the surrealistic. He was an acknowledged influence on many authors of Russian and world literature, including Bulgakov, Dostoevsky, Franz Kafka, and Flannery O'Connor. In his stories you will find him looking with a jaundiced and satirical eye at the corruption of Russian bureaucracy and imperialism. He himself might have denied it, as he did when accused of satire in his play The Government Inspector in 1836. How could that be? asked Gogol, when it was staged because of the intervention of Tsar Nicholas I himself. I'll let you decide for yourself whether he was a satirist, as we turn tonight to part one of his most famous short story, The Overcoat, first published in 1842. It is presented tonight in profound respect and admiration for the brave people of Ukraine. The Overcoat by Nikolai Gogol In a certain Russian ministerial department, but it is perhaps better that I do not mention which department it was, there are in the whole of Russia no persons more sensitive than government officials. Each of them believes, if he is annoyed in any way, then the whole official class is insulted in his person. Recently an Izbravnik, country magistrate, I do not know of which town, is said to have drawn up a report with the object of showing that, ignoring government orders, people were speaking of Ispravniks in terms of contempt. In order to prove his assertions, he forwarded with his report a bulky work of fiction, in which, on about every tenth page, an Ispravnik appeared generally in a drunken condition. In order, therefore, to avoid any unpleasantness, I will not definitely indicate the department in which the scene of my story is laid, and I will say in a certain chancellery. Well, in a certain chancellery there was a certain man who, as I cannot deny, was not of an attractive appearance. He was short, had a face marked with smallpox, was rather bald in front, and his forehead and cheeks were deeply lined with furrows, to say nothing of other physical imperfections. Such was the outer aspect of our hero, as produced by the St. Petersburg climate. As regards his official rank, for with us Russians the official rank must always be given, he was what is usually known as a permanent titular counsellor, one of those unfortunate beings who, as is well known, are made a butt of by various authors who have the bad habit of attacking people who cannot defend themselves." Our hero's family name was Bachmachkin. His baptismal name was Akaki Akakievich. Perhaps the reader may think this name somewhat strange and far-fetched, but he can be assured that it is not so, and that circumstances so arranged it that it was quite impossible to give him any other name. This happened in the following way. 
Akaki Akakievich was born, if I am not mistaken, on the night of the 23rd of March. His deceased mother, the wife of an official and a very good woman, immediately made proper arrangements for his baptism. When the time came, she was lying on the bed before the door. At her right hand stood the godfather, Ivan Ivanovich Yeroshkin, a very important person who was registrar of the Senate. At her left, the godmother, Anna Semonovna Bayobrushkova, the wife of a police inspector, a woman of rare virtues. Three names were suggested to the mother from which to choose one for the child, Mokuya, Sosuya, or Kozdazat. No, she said, I don't like such names. In order to meet her wishes, the church calendar was opened in another place, and the names Trifili, Dula, and Verakazi were found. This is a punishment from heaven, said the mother. What sort of names are these? I never heard the like. If it had been Varadat or Varuk, but Trofili and Varakazi? They looked again in the calendar and found Pavskikaki and Vaktizi. Now I see, said the mother, this is plainly fate. If there is no help for it, then he had better take his father's name, which was Akaki. So the child was called Akaki Akakievich. It was baptized, although it wept and cried and made all kinds of grimaces, as though it had a presentiment that it would one day be a titular counsellor. We have related all this so conscientiously that the reader himself might be convinced that it was impossible for little Akaki to receive any other name. When and how he entered the chancellery, and who appointed him, no one could remember. However many of his superiors might come and go, he was always seen in the same spot, in the same attitude, busy with the same work, and bearing the same title, so that people began to believe he had come into the world just as he was, with his bald forehead and official uniform. In the chancellery where he worked, no kind of notice was taken of him. Even the office attendants did not rise from their seats when he entered, nor look at him. They took no more notice than if a fly had flown through the room. His superiors treated him in a coldly despotic manner. The assistant of the head of the department, when he pushed a pile of papers under his nose, did not even say, please copy these, or there is something interesting for you or make any other polite remarks such as well-educated officials are in the habit of doing. But Akaki took the documents, without worrying himself whether they had the right to hand them over to him or not, and straightway set to work to copy them. His young colleagues made him the butt of their ridicule and their elegant wit, so far as officials can be said to possess any wit. They did not scruple to relate in his presence various tales of their own invention regarding his manner of life and his landlady, who was seventy years old. They declared that she beat him, and inquired of him when he would lead her to the marriage altar. Sometimes they let a shower of scraps of paper fall on his head and told him they were snowflakes. But Akaki Akakievich made no answer to all these attacks. He seemed oblivious of their presence. His work was not affected in the slightest degree— during all these interruptions he did not make a single error in copying. Only when the horseplay grew intolerable, 
When he was held by the arm and prevented writing, he would say, "'Do leave me alone. Why do you always want to disturb me at work?' There was something particularly pathetic in these words and the way in which he uttered them. One day it happened that when a young clerk, who had been recently appointed to the chancellery, prompted by the example of the others, was playing him some trick, he suddenly seemed arrested by something in the tone of Akaki's voice, and from that moment regarded the old official with quite different eyes. He felt as though some supernatural power drew him away from the colleagues whose acquaintance he had made there, and whom he had hitherto regarded as well-educated, respectable men, and alienated him from them. Long afterwards, when surrounded by gay companions, he would see the figure of the poor little counsellor, and hear the words, "'Do leave me alone. Why will you always disturb me at work?' Along with these words he also heard others, "'Am I not your brother?' On such occasions the young man would hide his face in his hands, and think how little humane feeling after all was to be found in men's hearts, how much coarseness and cruelty was to be found even in the educated, and those who were everywhere regarded as good and honorable men. Never was there an official who did his work so zealously as Akaki Akakievich. Zealously, do I say? He worked with a passionate love of his task. While he copied official documents, a world of varied beauty rose before his eyes. His delight in copying was legible in his face. To form certain letters afforded him special satisfaction, and when he came to them he was quite another man. He began to smile, his eyes sparkled, and he pursed up his lips so that those who knew him could see by his face which letters he was working at. Had he been rewarded according to his zeal, he would perhaps, to his own astonishment, have been raised to the rank of civic counsellor. However, he was not destined, as his colleagues expressed it, to wear a cross at his buttonhole, but only to get hemorrhoids by leading a too sedentary life. For the rest, I must mention that on one occasion he attracted a certain amount of attention. A director, who was a kindly man and wished to reward him for his long service, ordered that he should be entrusted with a task more important than the documents which he usually had to copy. This consisted in preparing a report for a court, altering the headings of various documents, and here and there changing the first personal pronoun into the third. Akaki undertook the work, but it confused and exhausted him to such a degree that the sweat ran from his forehead, and he at last exclaimed, No! Please give me again something to copy. From that time he was allowed to continue copying to his life's end. Outside this copying nothing appeared to exist for him. He did not even think of his clothes. His uniform, which was originally green, had acquired a reddish tint. The collar was so narrow and so tight that his neck, although of average length, stretched far out of it and appeared extraordinarily long, just like those of the cats with movable heads, which are carried about on trays and sold to the peasants in Russian villages. Something was always sticking to his clothes, a piece of thread, a fragment of straw which had been flying about, etc. Moreover, he seemed to have a special predilection for passing under windows, 
just when something not very clean was being thrown out of them, and therefore he constantly carried about on his hat pieces of orange peel and such refuse. He never took any notice of what was going on in the streets, in contrast to his colleagues who were always watching people closely, and whom nothing delighted more than to see someone walking on the opposite pavement with a rent in his trousers. But Akaki Akakievich saw nothing but the clean, regular lines of his copies before him, and only when he collided suddenly with a horse's nose, which blew his breath noisily in his face, did the good man observe that he was not sitting at his writing-table among the neat duplicates, but walking in the middle of the street. When he arrived home, he sat down at once to supper, ate his cabbage soup hurriedly, and then, without taking any notice how it tasted, a slice of beef with garlic, together with the flies and any other trifles which happened to be lying on it. As soon as his hunger was satisfied, he set himself to write, and began to copy the documents which he had brought home with him. If he happened to have no official documents to copy, he copied for his own satisfaction political letters, not for their more or less grand style, but because they were directed to some high personage. When the grey St. Petersburg sky is darkened by the veil of night, and the whole of officialdom has finished its dinner according to its gastronomical inclinations, or the depth of its purse, when all recover themselves from the perpetual scratching of bureaucratic pens, and all the cares and business with which men so often needlessly burden themselves, they devote the evening to recreation. One goes to the theatre, another roams about the streets, inspecting other people's clothes, another whispers flattering words to some young girl who has risen like a star in his modest official circle. Here and there one visits a colleague in his third or fourth-story flat, consisting of two rooms with an entrance hall and kitchen, fitted with some pretentious articles of furniture, purchased by many abstinences. In short, at this time every official betakes himself to some form of recreation, playing whist, drinking tea, and eating cheap pastry or smoking tobacco in long pipes. Some relate scandals about great people, for in whatever situation of life the Russian may be, he always likes to hear about the aristocracy. Others recount well-worn but popular anecdotes, as, for example, that of the commandant to whom it was reported that a rogue had cut off the horse's tail on the monument of Peter the Great. But even at this time of rest and recreation, Akaki Akakievich remained faithful to his habits. No one could say that he had ever seen him in any evening social circle. After he had written as much as he wanted, he went to bed, and thought of the joys of the coming day, and the fine copies which God would give him to do. So flowed on the peaceful existence of a man who was quite content with his post and his income of four hundred roubles a year. He might perhaps have reached an extreme old age, if one of those unfortunate events had not befallen him, which not only happened to titular, but to actual privy, court, and other counsellors, and also to persons who never give advice nor receive it. In St. Petersburg, all those who draw a salary of four hundred roubles or thereabouts have a terrible enemy in our northern cold, although some assert that it is very good for the health. About nine o'clock in the morning, 
when the clerks of the various departments betake themselves to their offices, the cold nips their noses so vigorously that most of them are quite bewildered. If at this time even high officials so suffer from the severity of the cold in their own persons that the tears come into their eyes, what must be the sufferings of the titular councillors whose means do not allow of their protecting themselves against the rigor of winter? When they have put on their light cloaks, they must hurry through five or six streets as rapidly as possible, and then in the porter's lodge warm themselves and wait till their frozen official faculties have thawed. For some time Akaki had been feeling on his back and shoulders very sharp twinges of pain, although he ran as fast as possible from his dwelling to the office. After well considering the matter, he came to the conclusion that these were due to the imperfections of his cloak. In his room he examined it carefully, and discovered that in two or three places it had become so thin as to be quite transparent, and that the lining was much torn. The cloak had been for a long time the standing object of jests on the part of Akaki's merciless colleagues. They had even robbed it of the noble name of cloak, and called it a cowl. It certainly presented a remarkable appearance. Every year the collar had grown smaller, for every year the poor titular councillor had taken a piece of it away in order to repair some other part of the cloak, and these repairs did not look as if they had been done by the skill hand of a tailor. They had been executed in a very clumsy way, and looked remarkably ugly. After Akaki Akakievich had ended his melancholy examination, he said to himself that he must certainly take his cloak to Petrovich the tailor, who lived high up in a dark den on the fourth floor. With his squinting eyes and pockmarked face, Petrovich certainly did not look as if he had the honor to make frock-coats and trousers for high officials, that is to say, when he was sober, and not absorbed in more pleasant diversions. I might dispense here with dwelling on this tailor, but since it is the custom to portray the physiognomy of every separate personage in a tale, I must give a better or worse description of Petrovich. Formerly, when he was a simple serf in his master's house, he was merely called Gregor. When he became free, he thought he ought to adorn himself with a new name, and dubbed himself Petrovich. At the same time he began to drink lustily, not only on the high festivals, but on all those which are marked with a cross in the calendar. By thus solemnly celebrating the days consecrated by the church, he considered that he was remaining faithful to the traditions of his childhood, and when he quarreled with his wife, he shouted that she was an earthly-minded creature and a German. Of this lady we have nothing more to relate than that she was the wife of Petrovich, and that she did not wear a kerchief but a cap on her head. For the rest she was not pretty— only the soldiers looked at her as she passed, then they twirled their moustaches and walked on laughing. Akaki Akakievich accordingly betook himself to the tailor's attic. He reached it by a dark, dirty, damp staircase, from which, as in all the inhabited houses of the poorer class in St. Petersburg, exhaled an effluvium of spirits vexatious to nose and eyes alike. As the titular councillor climbed these slippery stairs, 
he calculated what sum Petrovich could reasonably ask for repairing his cloak, and determined only to give him a rouble. The door of the tailor's flat stood open in order to provide an outlet for the clouds of smoke which rolled from the kitchen where Petrovich's wife was just then cooking fish. Akaki, his eyes smarting, passed through the kitchen without her seeing him, and entered the room where the tailor sat on a large, roughly made wooden table, his legs crossed like those of a Turkish pasha, and, as is the custom of tailors, with bare feet. What first arrested attention when one approached him was his thumbnail, which was a little misshapen, but as hard and strong as the shell of a tortoise. Round his neck were hung several skeins of thread, and on his knees lay a tattered coat. For some minutes he had been trying in vain to thread his needle. He was first of all angry with the gathering darkness, then with the thread. "'Why the deuce won't you go in, you worthless scoundrel?' he exclaimed. Akaki saw at once that he had come at an inopportune moment. He wished he had found Petrovich at a more favorable time, when he was enjoying himself, when, as his wife expressed it, he was having a substantial ration of brandy. At such times the tailor was extraordinarily ready to meet his customers' proposals with bows and gratitude to boot. Sometimes, indeed, his wife interfered in the transaction and declared that he was drunk and promised to do the work at much too low a price. But if the customer paid a trifle more, the matter was settled. Unfortunately for the titular counsellor, Petrovich had just now not yet touched the brandy flask. At such moments he was hard, obstinate, and ready to demand an exorbitant price. Akaki foresaw this danger, and would gladly have turned back again, but it was already too late. The tailor's single eye, for he was one-eyed, had already noticed him, and Akaki Akakievich murmured involuntarily, "'Good day, Petrovich.' "'Welcome, sir,' answered the tailor, and fastened his glance on the titular counsellor's hand to see what he had in it. "'I come just merely in order—I want—' We must here remark that the modest titular counsellor was in the habit of expressing his thoughts only by prepositions, adverbs, or particles which never yielded a distinct meaning. If the matter of which he spoke was a difficult one, he could never finish the sentence he had begun. So, when transacting business, he generally entangled himself in the formula, "'Yes, it is indeed true that—' Then he would remain standing and forget what he wished to say, or believe that he had said it. "'What do you want, sir?' asked Petrovich, scrutinizing him from top to toe with a searching look, and contemplating his collar, sleeves, coat, buttons, in short his whole uniform, although he knew them all very well, having made them himself. That is the way of tailors whenever they meet an acquaintance. Then Akaki answered, stammering as usual, I, I want, uh, uh, Petrovich, uh, this cloak, you see, it is still quite good, only a little dusty, and therefore it looks a little old. It is, however, still quite new, only that it is worn a little, there in the back and here in the shoulder, and there are three quite little splits. You see, it is hardly worth talking about. It can be thoroughly repaired in a few minutes. 
Petrovich took the unfortunate cloak, spread it on the table, contemplated it in silence, and shook his head. Then he stretched his hand toward the window-sill for his snuff-box, a round one with the portrait of a general on the lid. I do not know whose portrait it was, for it had been accidentally injured, and the ingenious tailor had gummed a piece of paper over it. After Petrovich had taken a pinch of snuff, he examined the cloak again, held it to the light, and once more shook his head. Then he examined the lining, took a second pinch of snuff, and at last exclaimed, "'No, that is a wretched rag. It is beyond repair.' At these words Akaki's courage fell. "'What?' he cried in the querulous tone of a child. "'Can this hole really not be repaired? Look, Petrovich, there are only two rents, and you have enough pieces of cloth to mend them with.' "'Yes, I have enough pieces of cloth, but how should I sew them on? The stuff is quite worn out. It won't bear another stitch.' "'Well, can't you strengthen it with another piece of cloth?' "'No, it won't bear anything more. Cloth, after all, is only cloth, and in its present condition a gust of wind might blow the wretched mantle into tatters.' "'But if you could only make it last a little longer—' Do, "'Do you see, really, no,' answered Petrovich decidedly. "'There is nothing more to be done with it. It is completely worn out. It would be better if you made yourself foot-bandages out of it for the winter. They are warmer than stockings. It was the Germans who invented stockings for their own profit.' Petrovich never lost an opportunity of having a hit at the Germans. "'You must certainly buy a new cloak,' he added." "'A new cloak?' exclaimed Akaki Akakievich, and it grew dark before his eyes. The tailor's workroom seemed to go round with him, and the only object he could clearly distinguish was the paper-patch general's portrait on the tailor's snuff-box. "'A new cloak?' he murmured, as though half asleep. "'But I have no money.' "'Yes, a new cloak.' repeated Petrovich with cruel calmness. "'Well, even if I did decide on it, how much—' "'You mean how much would it cost?' "'Yes.' "'About a hundred and fifty roubles,' answered the tailor, pursing his lips. This diabolical tailor took a special pleasure in embarrassing his customers and watching the expression of their faces with his squinting single eye." "'A hundred and fifty roubles for a cloak!' exclaimed Akaki Akakievich in a tone which sounded like an outcry, possibly the first he had uttered since his birth. "'Yes,' replied Petrovich, "'and then the marten fur collar and silk lining for the hood would make it up to two hundred roubles.' "'Petrovich, I adjure you,' said Akaki Akakievich in an imploring tone, no longer hearing nor wishing to hear the tailor's words, try to make this cloak last me a little longer. No, it would be a useless waste of time and work. After this answer, Akaki departed, feeling quite crushed, while Petrovich, with his lips firmly pursed up, feeling pleased with himself for his firmness and brave defense of the art of tailoring, remained sitting on the table. Meanwhile Akaki wandered about the streets like a somnambulist, 
at random and without an object. "'What a terrible business!' he said to himself. "'Really, I could never have believed that it would come to that. "'No,' he continued after a short pause, "'I could not have guessed that it would come to that. "'Now I find myself in a completely unexpected situation, "'in a difficulty that—' "'As he thus continued his monologue, "'instead of approaching his dwelling, "'he went, without noticing it, in quite a wrong direction.' A chimney-sweep brushed against him and blackened his back as he passed by. From a house where building was going on, a bucket of plaster of Paris was emptied on his head. But he saw and heard nothing. Only when he collided with a sentry, who, after he had planted his halberd beside him, was shaking out some snuff from his snuff-box with a bony hand, was he startled out of his reverie. "'What do you want?' the rough guardian of civic order exclaimed. "'Can't you walk on the pavement properly?' This sudden address at last completely roused Akaki from his torpid condition. He collected his thoughts, considered his situation clearly, and began to take counsel with himself seriously and frankly, as with a friend to whom one trusts the most intimate secrets. "'No,' he said at last, "'today I will get nothing from Petrovich.' Today he is in a bad humor. Perhaps his wife has beaten him. I will look him up again next Sunday. On Saturday nights he gets intoxicated. Then the next day he wants to pick me up. His wife gives him no money. I squeeze a ten-kopeck piece into his hand, and then he will be more reasonable, and we can discuss the cloak further. Encouraged by these reflections, Akaki waited patiently till Sunday. On that day, Having seen Petrovich's wife leave the house, he betook himself to the tailor's and found him, as he had expected, in a very depressed state as the result of his Saturday's dissipation. But hardly had Akaki let a word fall about the mantle than the diabolical tailor awoke from his torpor and exclaimed, "'No, nothing can be done. You must certainly buy a new cloak.' the titular counsellor pressed a ten-kopeck piece into his hand. "'Thanks, my dear friend,' said Petrovich. "'That will get me a pick-me-up, and I will drink your health with it. But as for your old mantle, what is the use of talking about it? It isn't worth a farthing. Let me only get to work. I will make you a splendid one, I promise.' But poor Akaki Akakievich still importuned the tailor to repair his old one. "'No,' "'And again, no,' answered Petrovich. "'It is quite impossible. "'Trust me, I won't take you in. "'I will even put silver hooks and eyes on the collar, "'as is now the fashion.' "'This time Akaki saw that he must follow the tailor's advice, "'and again all his courage sank. "'He must have a new mantle made. "'But how should he pay for it? "'He certainly expected a Christmas bonus at the office,' but that money had been allotted beforehand. He must buy a pair of trousers, and pay his shoemaker for repairing two pairs of boots, and buy some fresh linen. Even if, by an unexpected stroke of good luck, the director raised the usual bonus from forty to fifty roubles, what was such a small amount in comparison with the immense sum which Petrovich demanded? A mere drop of water in the sea. At any rate, he might expect that Petrovich— if he were in a good humour, would lower the price of the cloak to eighty roubles. But where were these eighty roubles to be found? 
perhaps he might succeed, if he left no stone unturned, in raising half the sum, but he saw no means of procuring the other half. As regards the first half, he had been in the habit, as often as he received a rouble, of placing a kopeck in a money-box. At the end of each half-year he changed these copper coins for silver. He had been doing this for some time, and his savings just now amounted to forty roubles. Thus he already had half the required sum. But the other half? Akaki made long calculations, and at last determined that he must, at least for a whole year, reduce some of his daily expenses. He would have to give up his tea in the evening, and copy his documents in his landlady's room in order to economize the fuel in his own. He also resolved to avoid rough pavements as much as possible in order to spare his shoes, and finally to give out less washing to the laundress. At first he found these deprivations rather trying, but gradually he got accustomed to them, and at last took to going to bed without any supper at all. Although his body suffered from this abstinence, his spirit derived all the richer nutriment from perpetually thinking about his new cloak. From that time it seemed as though his nature had completed itself, as though he had married and possessed a companion on his life journey. This companion was the thought of his new cloak, properly wadded and lined. From that time he became more lively, and his character grew stronger like that of a man who has set a goal before himself which he will reach at all costs. All that was indecisive and vague in his gait and gestures had disappeared. A new fire began to gleam in his eyes, and in his bold dreams he sometimes even proposed to himself the question whether he should not have a marten fur collar made for his coat. These and similar thoughts sometimes caused him to be absent-minded, as he was copying his documents one day he noticed that he had made a slip. Oh! he exclaimed, and crossed himself. At least once a month he went to Petrovich to discuss the precious cloak with him, and to settle many important questions, for instance where and at what price he should buy the cloth, and what color he should choose. Each of these visits gave rise to new discussions, but he always returned home in a happier mood, feeling that at last the day must come when all the materials would have been bought and the cloak would be lying ready to put on. This great event happened sooner than he had hoped. The director gave him a bonus not of forty or fifty, but of five and sixty roubles. Had the worthy official noticed that Akaki needed a new mantle, or was the exceptional amount of the gift only due to chance? However that might be, Akaki was now richer by twenty roubles. Such an access of wealth necessarily hastened his important undertaking. After two or three more months of enduring hunger, he had collected his eighty roubles. His heart, generally so quiet, began to beat violently. He hastened to Petrovich, who accompanied him to a draper's shop. There, without hesitating, they bought a very fine piece of cloth. For more than half a year they had discussed the matter incessantly, and gone round the shops inquiring prices. Petrovich examined the cloth, and said they would not find anything better. For the lining they chose a piece of such firm and thickly woven linen that the tailor declared it was better than silk. It also had a splendid gloss on it. 
They did not buy marten fur, for it was too dear, but chose the best cat skin in the shop, which was a very good imitation of the former. It took Petrovich quite fourteen days to make the mantle, for he had put an extra number of stitches into it. He charged twelve roubles for his work, and said he could not ask less. It was all sewn in silk, and the tailor smoothed the sutures with his teeth. At last the day came, I cannot name it certainly, but it assuredly was the most solemn in Akaki's life, when the tailor brought the cloak. He brought it early in the morning, before the titular councillor started for his office. He could not have come at a more suitable moment, for the cold had again begun to be very severe. Petrovich entered the room with the dignified mien of an important tailor. His face wore a peculiarly serious expression such as Akaki had never seen on it. He was fully conscious of his dignity, and of the gulf which separates the tailor who only repairs old clothes from the artist who makes new ones. The cloak had been brought wrapped up in a large, new, freshly washed handkerchief, which the tailor carefully opened, folded, and placed in his pocket. Then he proudly took the cloak in both hands and laid it on Akaki Akakievich's shoulders. He pulled it straight behind to see how it hung majestically in its whole length. Finally, he wished to see the effect it made when unbuttoned. Akaki, however, wished to try the sleeves, which fitted wonderfully well. In brief, the cloak was irreproachable, and its fit and cut left nothing to be desired. While the tailor was contemplating his work, he did not forget to say that the only reason he had charged so little for making it was that he had only a low rent to pay and had known Akaki Akakievich for a long time. He declared that any tailor who lived on the Nevsky Prospect would have charged at least five and sixty roubles for making up such a cloak. The titular councillor did not let himself be involved in a discussion on the subject. He thanked him, paid him, and then sallied forth on his way to the office. Petrovich went out with him, and remained standing in the street to watch Akaki as long as possible wearing the mantle, then he hurried through a cross-alley and came into the main street again to catch another glimpse of him. Akaki went on his way in high spirits. Every moment he was acutely conscious of having a new cloak on, and smiled with sheer self-complacency. His head was filled with only two ideas, first, that the cloak was warm, and secondly, that it was beautiful. Without noticing anything on the road, he marched straight to the chancellery, took off his treasure in the hall, and solemnly entrusted it to the porter's care. I do not know how the report spread in the office that Akaki's old cloak had ceased to exist. All his colleagues hastened to see his splendid new one, and then began to congratulate him so warmly that he at first had to smile with self-satisfaction, but finally began to feel embarrassed. But how great was his surprise when his cruel colleagues remarked that he should formally hansel his cloak by giving them a feast! Poor Akaki was so disconcerted and taken aback that he did not know what to answer nor how to excuse himself. He stammered out, blushing, that the cloak was not so new as it appeared, it was really second-hand. One of his superiors, 
who probably wished to show that he was not too proud of his rank and title, and did not disdain social intercourse with his subordinates, broke in and said, "'Gentlemen, instead of Akaki Akakievich, I invite you to a little meal. Come to tea with me this evening. Today happens to be my birthday.' All the others thanked him for his kind proposal, and joyfully accepted his invitation. Akaki at first wished to decline, but was told that to do so would be grossly impolite and unpardonable, so he reconciled himself to the inevitable. Moreover, he felt a certain satisfaction at the thought that the occasion would give him a new opportunity of displaying his cloak in the streets. This whole day for him was like a festival day. In the cheerfulest possible mood he returned home, took off his cloak, and hung it up on the wall after once more examining the cloth and the lining. Then he took out his old one in order to compare it with Petrovich's masterpiece. His looks passed from one to the other, and he thought to himself, smiling, "'What a difference!' He ate his supper cheerfully, and after he had finished, did not sit down as usual to copy documents. No, he lay down like a sybarite on the sofa and waited. When the time came, he made his toilet, took his cloak, and went out. You've been listening to the first part of Nikolai Gogol's story, The Overcoat. I hope you'll join me again for the conclusion next week. In the meantime, be well, be happy, please stay safe, all the best. Thank you.